This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight, we begin with an amazing couple, George Burns and Gracie Allen. They worked together as a successful comedy team that entertained vaudeville's film, radio, and television audiences for over 40 years. Burns and Allen met in 1922 and first performed together at the Hill Street Theater in Newark, New Jersey. Continued in small-town vaudeville theaters, married in Cleveland on January 7th of 1926, and moved up a notch when they signed with the Keith Albee Orpheum Circuit back in 1927. Now, George Burns wrote most of the material and played the straight man. Allen played a silly, addle-headed woman, a role often attributed to the dumb Dora stereotype common in the early 20th century vaudeville comedy. Well, early on, the team had played the opposite roles until they noticed that the audience was laughing at Gracie's straight lines. So they made the change. The Burns and Allen team was not an overnight sensation. According to George Burns, and I quote, We were a good man and woman act, but we were not headliners or stars or featured attractions. We were on the bill with them. There would be a star or two and a featured attraction, and then we would come on, fourth billing in an eight-act show. Their career changed direction when they made their first film. When Gracie went to work with George, she was engaged to another man. Well, that didn't stop George. He carried a ring in his pocket until she finally agreed to marry him while his brief first marriage to dancer Hannah Siegel ended in divorce. It took four years for George to change Gracie's mind. But they went on to become one of the funniest and best-loved couples in Hollywood. After making their radio debut in 1929, the pair landed a regular show, the George Burns and Gracie Allen Show, which aired from 1932 to 1950 on the NBC network. Now get this, in the late 30s, the program's audience numbered more than 40 million people. And NBC paid Burns and Allen $10,000 per week, an enormous sum for the time. Gracie suffered from intense migraine headaches, but rarely missed work because of them. For relaxation, she loved to shop and had a special fondness for furs. She was always perfectly groomed and wore beautiful clothes, always with three-quarter length sleeves to hide scars from a childhood accident caused when she pulled a boiling pot of water off the stove. Ellen's uh, name was often on the list of the ten best women. She was petite, weighing 103 pounds, and get this, ladies, wearing a four-and-a-half size shoe. I can just hear the woman right now muttering, Oh, you lucky girl. But I digress. It's on with the show and the episode entitled, George the Doctor. Another cup of Maxwell House coffee, George. Sure, pour me a cup, Gracie. You know, Maxwell House is always good to the last <laughs> drop. That drop's good, too. Yes, it's Maxwell House coffee time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. 
With yours truly, Toby Reed, B. Benadaret, Lois Corbett, Joseph Kearns, Lou Merrill, Harry Lubin, and the Maxwell House Orchestra, and Bill Goodwin. For America's Thursday night comedy enjoyment, it's George and Gracie. And for America's everyday coffee drinking enjoyment, it's Maxwell House. Always good to the last drop. Well, if any new fad comes along, you may be sure that Gracie will fall for it. Her latest enthusiasm is handwriting analysis. And we find her now telling her friend Blanche Morton all about it. I tell you, Blanche, it's absolutely uncanny. This man can tell you all about yourself just by looking at your handwriting. You don't say. Yes. All I did was send him my signature, and he told me the most intimate thing. What did he tell you? He said, you are a woman. <laughs> no. Yes. That's all he tells you for a dollar. Then the, you, you send in more money, and he tells you more. Gracie, if you ask me, this handwriting expert is a charlatan. Yeah, isn't he wonderful? <laughs> I mean, you shouldn't send him any more money. Oh, but wait till you hear what happened when I sent him George's handwriting. He analyzed it and decided that George shouldn't be in radio. I was wrong. Send him more money. <laughs> oh, I will. He said George's writing showed that he had the delicate, sensitive hands of a surgeon. A surgeon? Uh-huh. That's the doctor who wears a mask and carries a knife. <laughs> Thanks. Just think, George is a surgeon and doesn't know it. Blanche, are you busy this morning? No, why? Would you let George operate on you just to get the feel of it? Gracie, <laughs> you don't just suddenly become a doctor. It'd be years before George could open up an office. Well, I don't care about an office. I want him to open up people. <laughs> I mean, he has to study to become a doctor. Well, that won't take George long. His natural instinct is to be a doctor. He, he's only stayed in show business because to, he had to give me a job. That's the only reason he's in show business. <laughs> what? It's true. It's true. I've heard dozens of people say, if it weren't for Gracie, George wouldn't be in show business. <laughs> Yes, but what they meant now, was... it's my that... fault, Blanche. My fault that George isn't the doctor. So it's up to me to release his natural instinct. And you can help me. You're not going to carve on me. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, I hear him coming down for breakfast. Now, when he walks in, you act like a patient, and we'll see how he reacts. Stick out your tongue all that. Well, I'll do it, but it's silly. Here he is. Good morning, dear. Oh, hello, Blanche. George. Take a good, close look at Blanche. Before breakfast? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh... Well, eh, right back to you. George, Blanche did that to show you how she feels. Well, I feel the same way about her. <laughs> Don't you think she looks a little peaked? Yes, her head is very peaked. Give him, give him another look, Blanche. Uh... What do you think she should take? Arsenic. <laughs> Write that down, Blanche. I told you this was silly, Gracie. I'll see you later. What kind of a routine was that? Well, did it, did it stir something deep inside of you? Yeah, but I'm going to try to eat anyway. <laughs> Very well, Doctor. Huh? Doctor? Well, how does that sound to you, dear? 
You, you like me to call you a doctor? Yeah, but you better call one for yourself, too. <laughs> what's, uh, what's this all about? Well, I sent your handwriting in to be analyzed, and you're in the wrong business. You have the hands of a surgeon. What? Your handwriting has revealed the inner you, the real George Burns. You were never meant to be an actor. That's why people laugh at you. <laughs> Become a surgeon, put on a mask, and they'll stop laughing. Gracie, you have to go to school to be a doctor. You have to go to school for eight years. Well, then you're practically a doctor. You've already gone to school for seven years. Now, look, just because some handwriting expert said that I was supposed to be a doctor, that doesn't make it so. Oh, I took no chances, George. I checked it to make sure. Checked it? How? By numerology. Oh, well, that makes it authentic, yeah. Well, sure. You see, your name, G-E-O-R-G-E, and doctor, D-O-C-T-O-R, both have six letters. That means you vibrate with a doctor. There are also six letters in D-A-N-C-E-R. Suppose I vibrate with a dancer. Well, you better not let me catch you. <laughs> Gracie, listen to me. Even if all this hokum were true, I couldn't become a doctor now. I'm too old. How old are you? I'm ten years older than you are. Since when is 29 too old? <laughs> I'm too old to go to school. Well, think of the thrill of being a great doctor. Mm. I can see you now performing a delicate operation. Maybe a brain operation. Maybe on me. If I thought there was a chance of that, I'd go to school. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, a few months of schooling and you'll be a great doctor. Why, you can be John Brother Hopkins. <laughs> Forget it, honey. Show business is my racket. Listen. Oh, how do Mr. and Mrs. Audience? It is now my turn to perform and I'll present for you a little review in style, originality, and form. That's what I've been giving people for years. Well, so now become a doctor and make them well. <laughs> Gracie, I've tried to be patient and explain things to you. Now I've had enough. Understand? Yes, dear. I don't want to hear any more about this doctor business. Yes, dear. I'm going down to the cigar store. Goodbye. Goodbye, doctor. Oh, no. I knew George wouldn't go for it, Gracie. Oh, Blanche, I still say all he needs is to have his doctor instincts aroused. And that's why I dropped by. I'm on my way to the hospital. The hospital? Well, I'm going to offer George's services. Once he gets inside and smells the ether, boom. <laughs> you mean he'll be like a bird dog who smells a bird? Yeah, or a police dog who smells the police. <laughs> then he'll go to school and become a doctor. Oh, I'll be so proud of him. Gracie, doctors are wonderful, but I don't think George will ever be one. He will, too. Oh, I can see him now, dashing around in his delivery trunk, delivering babies. <laughs> Relieving suffering. Giving tall people hypos and short people low pose. <laughs> you know, George might even discover a new germ. Oh, great. Well, they discover new ones every day, like that germ that makes people drunk. What germ makes people drunk? Streptococcus. <laughs> Gracie, George couldn't even be a witch doctor. He could, too. You just bring him a sick witch. <laughs> well, I'll see you later, Blanche. I've got to get to the hospital. 
May I help you? Oh, how do you do? Um, this is the largest hospital in town, isn't it? Yes, this is the general hospital. Well, I'd like to speak to the head man. Is the general in? <laughs> There's no general here. Oh, well, then I'll speak to the private. There's no private either. There must be. His name is right on that door. Private Ward. <laughs> Miss. If he's busy, I'll talk to someone even lower. Lieutenant. We have no military personnel here. Perhaps I can help you. Well, um, I want to offer my husband's services. Is he a doctor? Well, he's going to be. That's why I want him to work here. I see. Has he taken medicine? Tons of it. <laughs> uh, perhaps you'd better talk to Dr. Powell. He's the hospital superintendent. You'll find him in the experimental laboratory down the hall. Thank you. How's your experiment coming along, Dr. Powell? Well, I've gone as far as I can, Dr. Reynolds. I've tested the serum on guinea pigs and monkeys, but I, I can't find a man to volunteer for a test. Exactly. What will the serum do? Well, if it works, you live to be a hundred. And if it doesn't? No one knows. That's why I can't get a volunteer. I've advertised in the paper. I've offered money. There doesn't seem to be any man brave enough to risk it. Maybe you can find a condemned criminal who... Come in. Uh, Dr. Powell? Yeah? I'd like to offer my husband's services. Ah, at last, a volunteer. <laughs> you can use them, huh? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, sit down and let's fill out these vital statistics. Name? George Burns. Sex? Oh, but I know what that is. Well, you should. You're a doctor. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. What's his height? Uh, five feet eight, or five feet ten after a poker game. Five feet ten after a poker game? Well, he tiptoes in so I won't hear him. I see. Wait. Now, I'm not sure what it is. Now, sometimes he weighs as little as 140 and sometimes as much as 170. Well, I'll, uh, I'll put it somewhere around the middle. Oh, good. That's where he puts most of it. Uh, where was he born? New York. He was raised on Pitt Street. I see. He grew up on the east side. He's no freak. He grew up on both sides. Yeah. Now, one question about his physical condition. Are his nerves steady? Mm, I, I don't know. The rest of him wobbles quite a bit. Well, I'll, I'll substitute another question. How long has he been married to you? Fifteen years. Steady nerves. <laughs> Mrs. Burns, send your husband right over. We'll be waiting for him. Oh, all right. Uh, just one thing, Doctor. Be sure to let him smell plenty of ether. Well, I really prefer to give him some local anesthetic. Well, I don't care where it's made. Just give him plenty of it. Gracie, I just had to run by and see how your plan to make Georgia doctor is working out. Oh, I thought you'd be anxious to hear about it, Lance. Oh, sure. I'm all ears. Well, don't worry. When George is a doctor, he'll trim them down for you. <laughs> and that won't be long now. I got him a job at the general hospital so he can smell the ether. What kind of a job? Well, I don't know. It's in the experimental laboratory. Well, gee, that's where they work with microbes and bacteria. I hope George doesn't bring any home. Oh, Blanche, you know he wouldn't steal. Well, <laughs> <laughs> What will George say about this job? Oh, I won't tell him about the job. 
I'll trick him into going to the hospital, and his instinct will do the rest. Well, you better start tricking. Here he comes up the walk. Now, watch how I handle him, Blanche. Oh, dear. Hello, George. Well, aren't you going to speak to Blanche? Oh, sure. Ah. Oh, that's nice. Well, as I was saying, Blanche, this doctor wanted George to sing at the general hospital, and I said, well, doctor, he hasn't got time. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The general hospital? Sing? Me? No, please, dear, I'm talking to Blanche. So I said, my husband is much too busy to sing at a hospital. Hold it, hold it. Hmm? Somebody wanted me to sing, and you turned them down? Yes. Yeah, Dr. Powell called from the general hospital. He seems to think your singing would help the patient. Well, he's right. I've been writing her a letter. To Virginia where I'm at it. And now I feel better, because I know I'm going home. You see, Gracie, a voice like mine is soothing. It, it eases pain. It's like a shot of morphine. You're not kidding. Who's a morphine? When George gets to the hospital, they'll have a real dope. <laughs> yeah, now, where will I find us, Dr. Powell? Well, in the experimental laboratory. Well, don't expect me back until late. I'll probably do about eight or nine of my routine. I'll see you later. <laughs> I'm writing a letter. Oh, you know, I hated to trick him, Blanche, but it's worth it. Someday he'll be a great surgeon. That'll be the first time a ham ever did the carving. <laughs> Have you got my serum ready, Dr. Reynolds? Yes, Dr. Powell. Good. Mr. Burns should be here soon. Gee, I can't understand why a married man would be willing to take such a risk. I can. I talked to his wife. <laughs> well, if he shows up, he's the bravest man I've ever seen. Why, this serum could... Come in. Dr. Powell? Yeah? I'm George Burns. Understand you want me for a little routine. Ah, did you hear that, Dr. Reynolds? What a magnificent understatement. Ah, you're a brave man, Mr. Burns. Well, I used to get nervous, but uh, I'm an old hand at this. I've been through the mill. Yes, you do look like you've been used frequently. <laughs> yeah, I'm a veteran. I can do anything. Well, I think you'll find today's job a little different. That's right, Mr. Burns. You're taking the place of Powell's guinea pigs. That's okay. I once took the place of Madame Burkhardt's cockatoos. <laughs> That's the time I laid an egg. Hey, you can do anything. I whistle, too, you know. <laughs> well, before we start, let's check your condition. Uh, Dr. Reynolds, would you take his pulse down? Certainly. One. We have to bother with this. I'm raring to go. Oh, we admire your spirit, Mr. Burns, but you must realize that you might die. Not with my material. <laughs> well, of course, we do have hope. Hope? You better put me on ahead of him. He's tough to follow. <laughs> oh, what a man, jesting at a time like this. Two? By the way, Doctor, where do we do this at? Oh, right here in the experimental laboratory. It's our largest room. Good, good. I like a big audience. Is it all right with you if all available doctors and nurses watch the performance? Sure. Be glad to hand them a thrill. I'm writing her a letter. Mr. Burns. <laughs> you were a matter, Mr. Burns. And now I feel better, because I know I'm going home. <laughs> Mr. Burns, we can postpone this if you're in pain. <laughs> I feel great. Three... 
three already? <laughs> I must be nervous. My pulse is fast today. <laughs> Hi, Gracie. How come you're going in the hospital? Oh, hello, Bill. I'm going in to visit George. What's the matter with him? Oh, he isn't a patient here. He's inside smelling the ether. What for? Well, I'm trying to get him out of radio. Well, that won't do it. He's still in radio and he's been smelling up the ether for years. <laughs> oh, no. No, no. You, you don't understand. You see, George is meant to be a doctor, so I got him a job in the experimental laboratory. Come on in and see him. Oh, okay, Gracie. I love to go into hospitals, you know. I, I always catch something. You like that? Well, sure. You ought to see the nurse I caught yesterday. <laughs> well, come on. Let's go. Just a moment. Where are you going? Well, we're going to the experimental laboratory. I'm sorry. They're about to conduct an experiment. You can't go in now. But it's important. I have strict orders. No one admitted to the laboratory but doctors and nurses. Oh. Did you hear that, doctor? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Come on, nurse. Wait a minute. Are you a doctor? Oh, sure. Dr. Goodwin, Hollywood's fastest operator. <laughs> Where do you operate? Well, mostly in Griffith Park. <laughs> Griffith Park? Yes, he does a lot of cutting up there. <laughs> Come on, doctor. One moment, Mr. Goodwin. I've seen you around this hospital before. You were chasing one of our young nurses. Oh, well, yes, I, um, I wanted to have a consultation with her. That's ridiculous. The girl was just a beginner. She'd had no experience. Oh, no, then why did she run? Yes. <laughs> Come on, doctor. Just a minute. I can't believe that he's a doctor. I doubt if he'd know a sore throat from a maternity case. Oh, you're wrong. M maternity cases are his specialty. Well, just yesterday, he cured a man who had a very bad case of maternity. <laughs> What she means is that this expectant father was very nervous, you see. The poor guy was pacing the floor saying, Will it be a boy or a girl? Will it be a boy or a girl? Then I walked out and handed him that little gift from heaven. And when he saw what it was, he cried, Hallelujah, just what I wanted. What was it? A cup of Maxwell House coffee. <laughs> yeah, I always give it to anxious fathers. There's nothing like a steaming, fragrant cup of delicious Maxwell House to set you right. But what about the man's wife? What did she have? Well, she had a cup of Maxwell House, too. <laughs> Everybody gets it who's a patient of Dr. William Goodwin, MMB. M.M.B. Manizales, Medellin's book a reminder. <laughs> you see, Maxwell House is a blend of choice Latin American coffees, radiant roasted to the peak of flavor perfection. Good to the last drop. Mr. Goodwin, I've heard enough. You're not a doctor and you can leave this hospital. Oh, come on. Let us go into the experimental laboratory. We just want to see my husband, Mr. Burns. Why, he's the man who's being experimented on. They're giving him a new serum. And if it works, he'll live to be a hundred years old. Oh, well, gee, no wonder they picked George. They won't have to wait long to see if it works. <laughs> well, I'll be running along, Gracie. Down hello for me. But did you, did you say they're experimenting on Mr. Burns? Yes. Dr. Powell is making a guinea pig out of him. Well, I've got to stop him. I don't want a husband who oinks. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm sorry, you can't disturb the experiment. Well, Mr. Burns, we're just about ready to begin. <clears throat> well, how is his pulse count, Dr. Reynolds? I'm still taking it. Seven. <laughs> that will be enough. Our audience is assembled, so let's get started. Uh, Mr. Burns, will you remove your clothes? Uh, that's not the kind of act I do, Doc. <laughs> you should have gotten Gypsy Rose Lee. Ah, uh, what courage. Joking right up to the last minute. Ah, uh, Mr. Burns, time is short. Take your clothes off. Well, do I have to? Yes. Well, okay, if you insist, but uh, shouldn't we save that for a sock finish? <laughs> I can't top that with ain't misbehaving. Uh, what? Look, let me routine it for you, Doc. I'll open like this. Ain't misbehaving all by myself. Ain't misbehaving. I'm happy on the show, baby. Mr. Burns. Don't talk to Mr. Burns. my love. Oh, baby, love you. Really, save a love you. I know. Well, then I'll go into my Frisco step. I brought my derby hat. Mr. Burns, remove your clothes. Well, okay. But at least give me a fan. <laughs> Mrs. Burns, I've explained that you cannot go into the experimental laboratory and interrupt Dr. Powell. But it's my fault that my poor husband is in there. He doesn't know what he's getting into. I have strict orders. Oh, 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 oh my appendix. Quick, take me to Dr. Powell. He won't remove your appendix. He already did. I want it put back. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, that won't get you in. No, huh? Oh, oh, let me go in there, quick. I'm going to have a baby. In the experimental laboratory? Well, yes, this is my first one, and it's, a, it's an experiment. Mrs. <laughs> Burns, it's no use. Well, look, tell the doctor to give me the serum. I love George. I, I can't let anything happen to him. Let me take his place. Yes, a shame it didn't work out. Well, don't let one failure discourage you. I'll try again, Dr. Reynolds. Oh, Dr. Dr. Powell. Oh, hello, Mrs. Burns. Is, is it over? Yes, yes, it's all over. How, how is my husband? Mrs. Burns, I, I hate to tell you this, but... But, but... but what? Your husband is as nutty as a fruitcake. <laughs> Did you give him the serum? No, we couldn't catch him. <laughs> He's in there running around with nothing on but a derby hat singing Ain't Misbehaving. <laughs> He looks awful in a derby hat. <laughs> oh, I, I better take him right home. Oh, good night, dear. Happy dreams. Oh. George, you're mad at me because I try to make you a doctor. Oh, how can I stay mad? You did offer to take my place when you found out the experiment was dangerous. Well, sure, I love you. Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't love me so much if I were a doctor. Their wives get no romance. No burning kisses? No, sir. Doctors don't have time for that. All a all a all a doctor's wife gets is a fast peck on the cheek. Well, then I'm glad you're an entertainer. Good night, sir. Good night. Judge, kiss me again. Okay. Good night, doctor. <laughs> 
Well, Gracie, next week, our guest star will be that sensational movie menace, Richard Widmark. Richard Widmark? Oh, he's wonderful. Yeah, that's the kind of part I'd like to play, a heartless killer. George, with a, with a movie star here next week, I'll need a new outfit. Oh, yeah? I'll try and get it, huh? <laughs> You're talking to a big man. A killer. I'll give you nothing. George, buy me a new outfit. Yes, dear. Good night. Until next Thursday, when we will have as our guest Richard Whitmire. Good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House, America's favorite brand of coffee. Always good to the last drop. Stay tuned for Challenge of the Yukon next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Challenge of the Yukon and the episode Escape to the North. Now, as gunshots echo across the windswept, snow-covered reaches of the wild northwest, Quaker Puff wheat and Quaker Puff rice, the breakfast cereal shot from guns, present the Challenge of the Yukon. It's Yukon King, swiftest and strongest lead dog of the Northwest, blazing the trail for Sergeant Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police in his relentless pursuit of lawbreakers. On King, on Huskies! Gold, gold discovered in the Yukon, a stampede to the Klondike in the wild race for riches. Back to the days of the gold rush. With Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice, bringing you the adventures of Sergeant Preston and his wonder dog Yukon King as they meet the challenge of the Yukon. Man, oh man, what a treat it is to dive into a heaping bowlful of Quaker puffed rice or Quaker puffed wheat topped with milk or cream and your favorite fruit. Mmm, what a breakfast. Say, these king-size, ready-to-serve premium grains of wheat or rice are shot from guns. Yes, actually exploded up to eight times normal size to make them crisp and tender. Bigger and better tasting. Tomorrow, sure, get off to a flying start with this breakfast treat. Quaker puffed rice or Quaker puffed wheat. Luke McGowan was a hard-bitten product of the Northwest Frontier, whose temper had not been sweetened by the fact that he had received what he considered a raw deal from organized society. After killing a man in a cafe brawl, he had been unable to prove that he had shot in self-defense and had been sentenced to ten years at hard labor. When his prison term was up, Luke drifted north to the Yukon, and in the summer of 98, he staked a small claim far up the Stewart River. All through the following fall and winter, Luke worked his claim industriously. And by the end of February, when his claim had finally petered out, he had taken more than $20,000 worth of gold dust out of the ground. Now he was on his way to Dawson City to cash in his dust and decide what to do with his hard-earned riches. McGowan had reached the mouth of the Stewart River and was traveling north along the Yukon Trail when he fell in with Louis Gouraud, a swarthy, shifty-eyed half-breed. McGowan mistrusted the half-breed on sight and made up his mind that if questioned, 
He would say nothing about the bags of gold that were stowed away with the gear on his sled. So you have been prospecting upon the Stuart, eh, McGowan? Yeah, that's right, Gro. Now you go to Dawson with plenty gold in your poke, eh? Oh. No, I didn't have no luck at all. I'm flat broke. Too bad, my friend. What? That is the luck of the game, eh? What are you looking at me with that way for? I am trying to remember where I have seen you before. Now I remember. You are the Luke McGowan that was sentenced for killing a man 10, 11 years ago down in British Columbia, no? It happens that he drew on me first. Not that it's any of your business. Now, if you don't like the idea of being trail mates with a murderer, I'll mush on by myself. <laughs> oh, do not go losing your temper, my friend. Whatever you are a murderer or an honest man, Louis Garot can take care of himself. Come on, we hit the trail together. Twilight was falling as the two sleds drew to a halt at a fork in the trail. Here I must leave you, my friend. My cabin, she lied that way. If you would like to come with me, I will be glad to put you off for the night. Oh, thanks. I'll keep on the trail for Dawson. Very well. Then I say goodbye. In another hour, you should be able to reach Joe Rinker's cabin. Joe Rinker? I never heard of him. He is, uh, how you say, an, an old-timer. He has a mine, very rich mine, too. But he wishes to sell it so he can go home to the States. Probably he will try to sell it to you. He tries to sell it to everybody. Well, he won't sell it to me. <laughs> I haven't the money to buy it. I got to be mushing on, Garo. Au revoir, my friend. And maybe I see you at Joe Rinker's tomorrow morning. Maybe. But I'll be hitting the trail mighty early. So long, Garo. An hour later, Luke McGowan reached Joe Rinker's cabin. That evening, after a tasty supper of bacon and beans, the two men sat talking near the stove. Joe Rinker spoke. So you made out all right for yourself, hey, McGowan? Yeah, I cleaned up at least $20,000 worth of gold dust. <laughs> that brief Garo don't know it, though. I didn't trust the critter, so I told him I was flat broke. <laughs> Where are you going? Hey, what are you going to do with that gun? Gun, I'm going to kill you. Kill me? What for? Because I want that gold on your sled. But what about your mine? It's not worth a plug nickel. It's solid. I've been trying to unload it on someone for the last six months. You mean you're actually broke? I'm broke, all right. But I've sworn I'm going to leave the Yukon with a decent stake. And that gold on your sled is just a stake I've been looking for. Look, you can't shoot me, Ringer. You'll never get away with it. No one will know you're missing, McGowan. You better say your prayers right now. No, you don't. Lunging forward suddenly, Luke seized Joe Rinker's wrist. For a moment, the two men grappled, and then... I... I've killed him. With a sinking feeling, Luke realized the full danger of his position. Who would believe his incredible story when every circumstance suggested that he had murdered the mine owner? With robbery as the obvious motive. I gotta clear out of here fast. Early the next morning, Louis Garreau stopped by Joe Rinker's cabin. He's dead. And I bet I know who shot him, that Luke McGowan. You better go tell him on Sergeant Preston and his great dog, King, were at the nearby settlement of Ogilvy when Garreau arrived with the news of Joe Rinker's murder. A short time later, Sergeant Preston and King, with Louis Garreau, were carefully examining the scene of the crime. What do you look at the walls for, Sergeant? Rinker's gun had been fired... Want to see if the shot went wild and landed in the woodwork. Maybe he hit McGowan with that shot. I doubt that. 
If McGowan had been wounded, chances are he'd have left traces of blood somewhere around the cabin. You can bet King would nose out those traces. Ah, it is very strange. Now listen to me, Louie. Judging from those tracks outside, McGowan's heading due east. Go back to Ogilvy and tell them I said telegraph McGowan's description to all the settlements east of here. In the meantime, I'll put King on McGowan's trail. Come on, boy. We've got a job to do. It was noon of that same day in the little town of Moose Crossing that Bill Weems, the local telegraph operator, stopped into Ma Schmidt's general store. Well, Bill, what's the news on the telegraph today? Plenty of excitement on the way, Ma. A man was found murdered over near Ogilvy. Murdered, you say? Ah, oh, that is bad. The Montys know who did it, and they say he's heading this way. They've wired his description to all the settlements east of Ogilvy. What does he look like, this murderer? Well, they say he's a big, tough-looking sourdough with a crop of red whiskers. His name is Luke McGowan. You better keep an eye out for this McGowan feller. In the meantime, William, what do you say to a little game of checkers before you go back to work? <laughs> what do you think I came over for, Ma? <laughs> a short time later, as Ma and Bill were bent over the checkerboard, they heard the door open. Oh, you got a customer, Ma. Yeah, yeah, I go see what he wants. Yes, sir, what can I do? Well, what are you staring at? I, I was just admiring that crop of red whiskers you got. <laughs> Quite a bonfire you got there, mister. Yeah, well, never mind my whiskers. Just attend to my order and I'll be on my way. Yeah, yeah, you tell me what you want and I get it for you. As Ma bustled around, filling the stranger's order, she found an opportunity to whisper to Bill. It's that murderer McGowan, Bill. Go sneak out the back way and go get help. That's what I thought. You keep him talking. Don't make a move, either of you. Since you two seem to know all about me, maybe I'd better tie you both up. Covering Ma Schmidt and Bill Weems with his six-shooter, Luke forced them to tie each other's ankles. Then he himself tied their hands behind their backs. <clears throat> I guess that'll hold you. All right. How much I owe you for those supplies? I do not know. I haven't added up the bill. Maybe sixteen, seventeen dollars. I'll help myself to the flour and call it twenty. Several hours later, Sergeant Preston and King arrived in town. Ma Schmidt and Bill Weems told the Mountie their story. Yeah, yeah, Sergeant. I recognized him by his red whiskers. Mm. And a funny thing, Sergeant. He seemed mighty honest for a murderer. Oh. Before he left, he weighed out enough gold to pay for the supplies he bought. And he left it on the pan of the scales. Paid you in gold, eh? Yeah. Yesterday, he said he was flat broke. Ah, he had plenty of gold, Sergeant. The poke he brought into the store to pay for his supplies, he must have had 20 pounds of gold dust on it. That gold may be the final evidence that will convict Luke McGowan of murder. Yeah? Come on, King. Better hit the trail again. Like we should be able to arrest McGowan within the next 24 hours. After leaving Moose Crossing, Sergeant Preston noticed that the fugitive's tracks had now swerved in a northerly direction. He knows we're after him, boy, so he's striking north. Probably thinks he can circle around Dawson and Forty Mile and get over the border before we catch up with him. Well, let's see about that. On King! On! Late the following morning, Luke headed up a rocky trail that gradually climbed until it topped a lofty, spruce-clad plateau. Pausing to look back over the ground he had just traveled, the fugitive finally caught sight of his pursuer on the winding trail far below. That must be a mountain. The way that team of his is traveling, he'll be on my neck in another hour. Mush you, Husky! Mush! 
whipping his team forward frantically, Luke pushed on at top speed. A short time later, he came to a low bridge, stretching across a steep wall ravine. The bridge was made of logs. Luke crossed the bridge, then halted his team and took out an axe from among the gear on his sled and began chopping. With furious strokes, Lou hewed away at the log bridge. Soon the structure began to totter. With a few more blows, the fugitive finally sent it crashing to the floor of the ravine far below. Already, Luke could hear the approaching dog team of his pursuer. Driving his own sled behind a big cluster of rocks, the fugitive ducked out of sight and waited tensely. As Sergeant Preston pulled to a halt on the opposite ledge, Luke stepped into view with his rifle raised to his chest and shouted, Don't go for your gun, Marty. McGowan, I advise you to surrender. I advise you to turn around and head back the way you came. And if I refuse... I'll come free. If you're not turned around by that time, I'm going to let you have it. I'm not turning back, McGowan. I'm starting around the ravine right now to place you under arrest. Remember, you can shoot me, but sooner or later, the force will catch up with you. All right. Unking! Un! I'm warning you, Marty! One, two, three! We'll continue our story in just a moment. Shot... From guns. These three famous words mean a breakfast treat all ready to eat. The original, the one and only Quaker puffed rice or Quaker puffed wheat. Yes, these are giant size grains. I said giant size. And they actually are shot from guns to make them crisp and tender. Quaker puffed rice and Quaker puffed wheat are exploded up, up, up. Two eight times normal size. That makes them bigger and better tasting. Yes, they're shot through and through with keen nut-like flavor, too. They're a thrifty deluxe family breakfast treat that's easy to fix as falling off a log. Just pour out a bowlful, add some fruit, and milk or cream. Talk about good. More important, long hours at school and play call for a hearty breakfast. And Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice furnish added food values of restored natural grain amounts of vitamin B1, niacin, and iron. So how about it? You'll be getting off to a flying start when you eat Quaker puffed wheat or Quaker puffed rice. And to get the original crisp, fresh wheat or rice shot from guns, always buy the big red and blue package with the smiling Quaker man on the front. Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice are never sold in bags or bulk. Now to continue our story. King was furious when he saw his master fall face down in the snow. He wanted to charge to attack the gunman, but the canyon blocked his way. Then the great dog did the next best thing. He sprang to his master's side, ready to shield Preston from further bullets with his own furry body. Sergeant Preston lay quietly for a few moments until he heard the barking of McGowan's dogs fade into the distance. Then he sat up and examined his wound. It's all right, boy. Just caught me in the fleshy part of the leg. Seems to be all right. Guess I can manage. King, 
If McGowan's a murderer, I wonder why he didn't kill me. At that distance, it's hard to see how he could have missed. Sergeant Preston bandaged his wound and then began the long hazardous trip around the ravine. By the time he picked up McGowan's trail on the opposite side of the ravine, the fugitive had gained a full six hours' lead on him. In the days that followed, Sergeant Preston maintained a steady, relentless pursuit of his quarry. On the fifth day after he had been wounded, Sergeant Preston encountered a trapper named Sandy Duncan, heading south with a load of furs. Sandy, I'm trailing a man named McGowan. Big, tough-looking fellow and a crop of red whiskers. You seen him? I sure have, Sergeant. That's why I'm heading south. What do you mean? He came to my cabin this morning and took nearly all my grub at the point of a gun. Of course, he paid me for it. But you can't eat gold. Well, I'm running pretty low on grub myself, Sandy. But I'll split what I have with him. No, you better hang on to what you've got. I'll tell you what, though, Sergeant. If you're willing to take time out, we go hunting for a couple of hours. If either of us gets anything, we can share it. That might be a good idea. All right, Sandy, I'll do it. Sandy led the sergeant up the banks of a frozen creek, where he thought they might locate the tracks of a stray moose or caribou. The two men separated in order to cover a wider terrain. But when they met several hours later, the only thing to show for their trouble was a snowshoe rabbit, which King had startled and driven into range of his master's revolver. Discouraged and somewhat uneasy, the two men headed back to their sleds, only to find that disaster had struck in their absence. Hey, someone's been at our sled, Sergeant. I think I can guess what's happened. Cleaned out your grub and fed it to the huskies. Luke McGowan, Sandy. Now I know why you bought up most of your food this morning. Wanted to keep me from getting any of it. Murdering galoot. You left us enough to eat for a day or so. Fat lot of good that'll do. Sergeant, you better turn around and come south with me. I can't do that, Sandy. But, Sergeant, you'll starve if you don't catch up with him. I'll have to take that chance. My job is to bring back McGowan, and that's what I'm going to do. Cutting down his daily rations to the bare minimum needed to sustain life. Sergeant Preston pushed grimly ahead. It was two days later in a remote mountain valley that his long pursuit finally approached its climax. A grisly sight met the Mounties' eyes. Ahead of him on the snow-covered trail lay McGowan's overturned sled with the Huskies dead in their traces, their sides feathered with arrows. We can't help them now, King. They're dead. McGowan evidently didn't know it. But when he entered this valley, he was trespassing on the Indian's sacred hunting grounds. They don't seem to have disturbed the gear on his sled. Let's take a look, boy. Plenty of supplies and... Wait a minute. Gold dust. Four big bags full of it. And Sandy said you can't eat gold. And yet men kill each other to possess it. Doesn't make much sense, does it, boy? Sergeant Preston transferred the supplies and the gold from McGowan's sled to his own. Then he gave King his orders. All right, King, we're going after McGowan and the men who captured him. There's a chance he may still be alive. But remember, from now on, keep the Huskies absolutely quiet. Our own lives may depend on it. Darkness had fallen an hour later as King slowed the team with a low growl. Oh, you Huskies. Oh, no. What is it, boy? We near their camp? Leaving his sled, Sergeant Preston went cautiously forward with King at his side. Soon the distant flicker of a firelight among the pines warned the Mountie that he was in sight of the Indian camp. Advancing silently through the darkness, the Mountie and his great dog took cover in a dense thicket of pines and underbrush. Before them, in a small clearing lit by a blazing campfire, they saw five Indian warriors chanting and posturing before a white man 
bound helplessly to a stake. It's Luke McGowan, all right. They're getting ready. Spears and arrows. King, now listen to me, boy. I'm going to tell you what to do. King cocked his ears and looked steadily at Sergeant Preston's eyes while the Mountie gave instructions. Then the great dog slunk silently around the edge of the clearing, keeping always out of sight behind a screen of trees and underbrush. The Mountie waited until he was sure King had arrived in position. And then suddenly... With his carbine in one hand and revolver in the other, the Mountie burst out of the underbrush, firing into the air. The Indians, taken completely by surprise and believing themselves attacked from two sides, fled in wild disorder. As King pursued them to the edge of the clearing, Sergeant Preston dropped his carbine, prepared to cut Luke McGowan free from the stake. Bounty, you showed up just in time. Never mind talking. There. Now you're free. Take this revolver and I'll take the carbine. We'll have to reload as we run. As the two white men prepared to flee, one Indian, braver than the others, paused and looked back at the clearing. In a flash, his keen eyes took in what was happening. He rallied his comrades to battle. Rushing back toward the clearing, the Indians loosed a volley of arrows at the fleeing white men. Most of the arrows went wild, but one struck Sergeant Preston in the shoulder. Oh, Preston! As the sergeant was hit, King sprang to cover his beloved master, and Luke McGowan turned coolly and fired point-blank at the onrushing Indian. Two of the Indians went down before Luke's shots. The others wavered, then turned to retreat. I'll carry you, Mountie. King, lead the way, boy. Jamming the revolver into the sergeant's holster, Luke hoisted him over one brawny shoulder, then reached down and picked up the carbine. All right, Husky, let's go. King led McGowan to his master's sled where the sergeant was gently deposited and the arrow removed. McGowan bandaged the wound as best he could. Then... we better make tracks out of this valley pronto. Must you, Husky! The next morning, Sergeant Preston awoke. McGowan, where are we? Take it easy, Mountie. We're a good many miles south of that Indian valley. Oh, hello, fella. Good old king. Some dog you got, Sergeant, believe me. Hadn't it been for him, we might have left our top hair back there with the Indians. What happened to your weapons, McGowan? They weren't on your sled. My six shooters right here under my park. Huh? The Indians never did get that. They took my rifle. They got so excited when you attacked, they forgot all about it. Well, what's the next move? You seem to hold all the trump cards at the moment. I don't know, Sergeant. Something else I don't savvy is why you risk your life to save me. I might ask you the same question. Well... How about it? You coming back to stand trial? Yeah, Mounty, I... I guess I am. A week later, the two men arrived back in Dawson City. Their appearance caused a minor sensation. Sergeant Preston, still weak from his wound, was riding the sled while Luke McGowan handled the team. Inspector Maynard, seated in his office at Mounted Police Headquarters, voiced the general reaction. What did you do to him, Sergeant? Hypnotize him? That's the first time I've ever seen a prisoner brought in driving the Mountie sled for him. This prisoner came back voluntarily, Inspector. And I think that should be remembered in his favor. It will be, Sergeant. Tell me, sir, have they held the inquest on Rinker's death? Yes, and they returned a verdict of murder against Luke McGowan. Oh, in that case, I'll have to stand trial. Any reason why he shouldn't? He's guilty, isn't he? Of shooting Rinker, yes, sir. Of murder, I don't think so. Can you prove that, Sergeant? I'm going to try, Inspector. I'm going to try awfully hard. On the day of the trial, the courtroom was packed. Luke McGowan was on the stand. Now, tell us in your own words exactly what happened at Joe Rinker's cabin. 
Rinker pointed his gun at me and said he was going to kill me. He said he wanted the gold on my sled because his own mine was worthless. Well, I grappled with him and the gun went off accidentally. Public sentiment, which at first had run strongly against McGowan, was now divided. Well, if Sergeant Preston says McGowan ain't guilty, then he ain't. But don't forget, he served time for killing a man down in British Columbia. Uh, let's wait and hear the evidence. A tense hush fell over the audience as Sergeant Preston took the stand. Sergeant, I understand you've gathered evidence tending to support the defendant's story. Will you tell us what that evidence is? Yes, sir. In the first place, Rinker was not killed by McGowan's gun. How do you know that, Sergeant? McGowan's six-shooter is a Colt 45. The bullet that killed Rinker was from a 32. It was obviously fired from Rinker's own gun, as McGowan claims. How do you know the 32 revolver found in the dead man's hand really belonged to Rinker? Friends have identified it as Rinker's gun, sir. Also, his initials were carved on the grips. You feel that rules out the possibility of murder? In my opinion, if McGowan had shot Rinker in cold blood, he would have used his own six-shooter. Simply doesn't make sense that he used Rinker's gun. Only reasonable explanation is that Rinker drew on him and the two men grappled, just as McGowan claims. I see. Is there any other evidence? Yes, sir. I've carefully examined Rinker's mine. With what result? The mine is worthless. Well, that throws some doubt on McGowan's alleged motive for the crime. Frankly, sir, I think it explodes the whole case against him. If Rinker's mine was worthless, then the gold on McGowan's sled must have come from his own claim. Under those circumstances, it was Rinker and not McGowan who had a motive for murder. Is that all, Sergeant? Well, I'd like to add this, sir. At no time while I was trailing McGowan did he behave like a cold-blooded killer. His every act was that of an innocent but desperate man. And when he returned to stand trial, he returned voluntarily, even though he could easily have killed me and escaped. In my opinion, Luke McGowan is clearly innocent of murder. Following Sergeant Preston's testimony, it took only a few minutes for the jury to return its verdict. We find the defendant... Not guilty. As the crowd left the courtroom, Luke McGowan pressed the sergeant's hand warmly. Your goal's waiting for you at headquarters, Luke. Oh, never mind the goal, sergeant. I, I just want to shake your hand. Well, don't bother thanking me, Luke. I was just doing my job. Frank King here. If he hadn't been on your trail, you might still be a fugitive. And if he hadn't been with us in that Indian valley... We might both be dead men. He's a smart dog and no mistake. Gosh, King, thanks, fella. At last, I've had a fair deal. <laughs> What's he mean by that? Well, Luke, I guess he's glad to know this case is closed. In just a moment, Sergeant Preston will give you a preview of Wednesday's adventure. Listen. Whatever you do, be listening to this program Wednesday. Remember, fellas and girls, that's the day after tomorrow. You're in for such a treat you'll hardly believe your ears. Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice have a surprise for you. If you like dogs, if you like king, if you like any dog, be on hand. Every single one of you listeners is getting in on something big. An offer that's out of this world. It's something you'll want. 
and it's yours at no extra cost. There's nothing to write in for. What is it? Well, all I can say is this. If you like dogs, be listening to our very next broadcast. And tell your friends to listen, too. That's this coming Wednesday, the day after tomorrow. These radio dramas, a feature of the challenge of the Yukon Incorporated, are created and produced by George W. Trendle, directed by Fred Flowerday, and edited by Fran Stryker. The part of Sergeant Preston is played by Paul Sutton. They are brought to you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the same time by Quaker Pup Wheat and Quaker Pup Rice. The breakfast cereal shot from guns. Listen Wednesday when Sergeant Preston and Yukon King meet the challenge of the Yukon in the case of the Sparrow. I was taking a boat trip on the Yukon Queen to protect a millionaire who was coming from New York. One night I found a note slipped under the door asking me to come to another part of the ship. When I reached there, I was slugged and thrown overboard. When King jumped after me, well, it's a mighty exciting story. Be sure to hear this exciting adventure Wednesday. Jay Michael wishing you goodbye, good luck, and good health from Quaker Pup Wheat and Quaker Pup Rice. So long. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Dimension X, followed by Fibber McGee and Molly. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.